you have your Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 6, looking at verses 53 to 56. I am, as many of you know, not a very technological person, rather, uh, in the area of technology, quite a backward uh, person, actually, and uh, using a paper Bible, other things like that that are clear indications, you know, which I still recommend some of that stuff, but uh, technology really is a remarkable thing in this sense, in this sense. This, this message I'm about to deliver, this will, be the, this will be the second message that I've delivered between 9 and 10 in the morning, on on July the second, um, here, and then in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, uh, we are 13 hours ahead of us. And so, Hete was here last night and uh, hooked us up to a, a service there in Ulaanbaatar that was live, and I watched them sing and recognized uh, some of the people in there from those that we uh, support. Some of you know Augie and have met him in particular. He was, he was there uh, singing, and, uh, and Hete uh, did all the translation, and, uh, and Hete was looking at a Mongolian Bible on his phone um, uh, next to me uh, while, we, while we did this thing together. Now, I don't know if he made it this morning, but he was, if he did, he's going to put some uh, um, prayer letters out there that he has put together, and you can read up a little bit more about what goes on in Mongolia. Some of you get that uh, via email, another technological thing, but uh, uh, he and Melanie put together this newsletter, and they, they do a very good job on it. So watch for that, and you can catch up a little bit on what's going on in, uh, in the church in Mongolia, a whole bunch of church plants that uh, we're a part of there. Let's stand together. Um, Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, you are 
the Blessed One. You are the source of all hope, the source of all happiness. You are the one who is absolutely stable. The psalmist repeatedly refers to you as our rock. The one who is absolutely stable, absolutely reliable, unchanging in all of that stability and in all of that reliability. And you teach us how to survive in spiritually fraught places like the United States of America or like Mongolia or like China or radically fraught places like North Korea like Iran you teach your people to survive, to conduct their lives in spiritual warfare in such places. You are the ground of our steadfast love. You are our fortress. You are a stronghold. And you are the one that redeems us from sin and sorrow and hopelessness. You are our shield in the midst of a fraught world, and we take refuge in you. And you will eventually bring all of the nations to answer to your anointed king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are often reminded and often commenting on how quickly time goes by. In just a couple of days, it'll be the 4th of July again, and another 4th of July will have come around on the calendar. Oh, Lord, you pay attention as we have sung this morning. You pay attention to people and call them your friend. The psalmist asks, what is man that you know him? What is man that you think about him? Man who is like a vapor and his days like a shadow passing. And so it is with us. We are gathered here to worship you. And if we know ourselves, we know that we won't be around all that long, for we are like a vapor. And many that we remember spending Fourth of Julys with, maybe some of the best in our lives, are no longer on this earth to spend the Fourth of July with. For they were vapors and passed away. Their lives were like a shadow passing. Their lives were just like ours. 
Oh, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to see your glory in the heavens, that you would bow them down, that you would show us the nature of your glory, that we would see it, we would rest in it, and rest in you. Send your hand from on high and rescue us and keep us from all the trials that face your people in the world and face us in our individual lives, whether they be health-related or relationship-related, financial, whatever the trial. Enable us to see it in the light of you, face it in the light of you, and handle it in the light of your strength and presence and hope. Father, we do pray for those who are gathered at that conference in Mongolia this morning on the other side of the world. As those pastors go out to their various places all across the country, many of them in very isolated, small places. May your presence and your word go with them, and may they be able to shine as lights in Mongolia. And may we be able to shine as lights here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You see it. Reminded you repeatedly of the New Testament professor Rodney Decker, who in his uh, commentary on Mark's gospel, the little preface to it, makes the note that Mark's gospel really can be boiled down to answering two questions, posing them and answering them. Who is Jesus, and what what does he expect from those who follow him? So those, he says, basically every paragraph in Mark's gospel raises the question, one or the other, and in our present paragraph, sort of both, But the dominance on the first one. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And what does he expect from those who wish to follow him? I've mentioned a number of times uh, recently the Canadian philosopher, prolific writer. He's an old man now named Charles Taylor wrote a number of the most significant academic books in many people's minds in the uh, early 21st century. And in his book, A Secular Age, he spends 776 pages answering this question. How is it that a highly religious Europe of 500 years ago came to be an almost completely secular Europe, wider than Europe, he means the West, Canada, the United States included, Canada's where he lives. How did that happen? And he analyzes that question for... 776 pages and tells a lot about 
the fact that you can't explain it in any simple way. He dismisses all of those. Um, uh, never really fully explains it, though he gives lots of hints, an insightful book for sure, very worth reading. But from a biblical perspective, what's amazing is not once in those 776 pages does Charles Taylor refer to the possibility that maybe this happened because of the judgment of God. Never mentions that as even a vague possibility. Nor, nor does he make a single reference to the prince of the power of the air, the one deceiving in the present age. See, that's a very different perspective than the perspective that you get when you open up the pages of the Bible. First John 5, you've heard me quote this many, many times. I'll read into it um, just a little, uh, read after it a little bit this time, but remember how John puts it. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if John was asked the question, so where does all this secularity come from? He would mention pretty prominently the power of the evil. I said, well, that's overly simplistic. That's sort of ridiculous. I mean, Charles Taylor has a much more sophisticated answer than that. Well, John might not disagree with all those sophisticated aspects to it. But he would say, there's spiritual forces at work that you might not otherwise imagine. We know that the Son of God has come and he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we, speaking of believers, we are in him who is true. And in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is, speaking of Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. Mark's trying to point us in the same direction in this text. Who is Jesus? The last two paragraphs, Jesus feeds 5,000 people out by the side of the sea of Galilee, which almost certainly was supposed to put those Jewish people in memory of God keeping the nation alive for 40 years with manna in the wilderness. Jesus comes walking on the water to the disciples out on the boat, almost certainly to bring to their minds something of the fact how God had parted the Red Sea and how Isaiah had described it as God being able to make a path across the sea. As they watched Jesus walk as if he was walking on a path up to their boat, and thereby causing his glory to pass them by, the very glory that was encapsulated in the central name for God 
in the Old Testament. The name Yahweh, repeated more than 6,000 times. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. I am who I am. Septuagint translation of Exodus 3.14. And God said to Moses, I am the one who is. I am the one who is. Who just absolutely and simply is. And thereby the explanation of everyone else. Thus says the Lord, the one who is. Who makes his path on the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Isaiah 43:16 and Mark referring to that God says Jesus if you understand who he is you'll understand him as somehow that very God and that's what's central in this almost innocuous sort of passage that we run into this morning where there's just multiple healings mentioned when Jesus gets out of the boat at the other side of the sea. Let's state our thesis for this morning this way. Salvation comes through a proper relationship with Jesus. Salvation comes through a proper relationship with with Jesus. We'll say three things about it. The first one is this. There is great value in recognizing something special about Jesus. There is great value in recognizing something special about Jesus, which is what they do. Uh, Verse 53 and 54 When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So Jesus has been just walking on the water, causing his glory to pass by the disciples. He gets in the boat, and now they've come to Gennesaret. And as Jesus is getting out of the boat, they recognize him. They know him to a degree. Actually uses the word for know that in the older Greek language, had some emphasis to it. Scholars argue that by the time you get to the uh, first century that the word for know, this epigonosco, is a compounded word, which in ancient Greeks meant there would be emphasis on it. "Ah, Most of that emphasis is gone by the time you get to the first century. But when it says they recognized him, I mean, it just literally says they knew who he was. They knew who he was. And in particular... We know, you can tell right away which aspect of his reputation they were most interested in. They knew this is the guy who has a reputation for healing people. They knew him to be that. This is the guy who heals people. And so as soon as they see him, they take off to find 
people that are in desperate need of healing that they know. That's what they do. Now, that's not to say that they recognize him in a way that the disciples failed to, as we noted at the last, the end of the last paragraph, right? Because the disciples, um, even when they have seen the feeding of the 5,000, and even when they have seen Jesus walk on the sea, were told they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. We're not to understand that these people have jumped way ahead of them. No, they haven't. The disciples knew that Jesus had done a couple of miracles. They were in no doubt about that. What they didn't really realize is, what does that really mean about who he is? Blind that. They didn't see that. These people didn't see that either. They're running around finding people in need because they do know this much about Jesus. He has a reputation for having healed people. So we think he's worth a shot. And off they go to get the people that they care about. Um, Now, all kinds of people recognize Jesus as special in some way. You remember in Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, you know, for sort of a sidewalk survey analysis of uh, who he is. Matthew 16, 13. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And all of the guesses are kind of lofty and flattering. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the prophets. They just don't know which one. So compliment, 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 compliment. But all of them, in the opinion of Matthew, way under the money. And in the opinion of Jesus as well. And then so he turns around and says to them, okay, that's what they're saying on the street, but what do you guys say? And that's when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now, the people in Gennesaret, they know Jesus, but they don't know him like that. That's not what Mark is saying. They don't know him like that. They don't necessarily yet have this supernatural knowledge. Some of them may get it through their physical healing. Others may not. But that's not what he means. They don't have that. They knew him. They knew there was something special about him. They paid a little extra attention to him, like many people in the world. Read a little bit about Jesus. Tried to say nice things about Jesus. Secondly, there is great value in knowing that you need help. There is great value in knowing that you need help. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and they ran about the whole region. 
began to bring the sick people on their beds, wherever they heard that he was. They laid the sick people in the marketplaces and implored him. There's lots of sick people in the ancient world. Lots. Well, there's plenty today, too. Yes, there is. But through what we would call the miracles of medicine, which, uh, more biblically speaking, through the providential advancements of medicine, whoo, There's, there's all kinds of you who would be basically lame quite a number of years ago were they not able to replace knees, hips, ankles. Others of you, very early on in your life, bad break of a leg, bad break of something else. In the ancient world, you're done. You're finished. You're crippled for the rest of your life. So you just add up all of those improvements that we've done in this room and just ask yourself, how many limping, crippled people would we have in this room? That is those of us who would still be here, which wouldn't include me. Because I died of a heart attack seven years ago in the ancient world. Eight years ago, actually. And quite a number of you, by the way, you wouldn't be here either. Long gone. Had Had appendicitis? Probably dead. Painful death. Those gallstones yet? Maybe dead. Painful death. That's the ancient world. And there's these battered people all over the place um, that haven't been fixed up like us so that, you know, I'll be, you know, hiking around on the 4th of July, though I should have been dead eight years ago. Providence of God in medicine, what an amazing, remarkable thing, not there in the ancient world. But here's something to think about, where they run off for these people. And these people are going to meet Jesus for one reason and one reason alone. These are the kind of people who know they need help. They know they're in trouble. They would love to see things improved. They are not on top of the world by any means. It's a dangerous thing when God blesses us with a little bit too much health and a little bit too much wealth together. Because we just don't feel like we need much of anything. Here's how the psalmist talks about such people. Psalm 10, 2 to 6. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor, let them be caught in their schemes that they may, that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his desires and of his soul. One greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. 
Your judgments are on high and out of sight. As for all his foes, he scoffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. I never have been. I shall not be moved. A little later in Psalm 30, it's the same, verses 6 and 7. The psalmist now giving his personal testimony. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved. Nobody like me. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Yeah, but he didn't know it. That's what actually happened. By God's favor, ended up with all this health and with all this wealth. But then, in this case, and you hid your face, and I was dismayed. Suddenly, a different set of circumstances just fall on this person. Just. And now what? Now they're dismayed. Now they know. Whoa. I am in trouble. That's a blessing. It is a blessing to know that you are absolutely and for sure in trouble with God in some way and need help. Need help to get out of it. That is a huge blessing. Thirdly, there is greatest value in reaching out in trust toward Jesus. Verse 56, and whenever he came into the villages and cities of the countryside... They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he may even touch the fringe of his garment. They're just calling out to Jesus. Let us touch the fringe of your garment. And then this little line, and as many as touched it were made well. As many as touched it were made well. Now this is another instance where that's a perfectly fine translation. There's nothing wrong with it. Except I think there's probably a nuance that you're supposed to draw a little bit broader. He just uses the central word for salvation. Sometimes we translate it this way and sometimes we don't. But, but literally, it, it actually just reads, and if you were just you know, learning your, your Greek, uh, as many as touched him were saved. They were saved. Now, it does mean primarily in this context, they were saved from the physical malady that they had, that they reached out to get rid of. They were healed. But it may have gone, uh, it may have gone a little beyond that. Um, But these people, of course, they're, they're healed, and then there they are, um, they're, they're up uh, walking around, 
and uh, people who have known them to be sick for many, many years are seeing them, and they say, well, what happened here? And that's where the question comes back around. So I reached out and I touched Jesus, and this happened. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I mentioned uh, a drunk acquaintance that I had in high school not too long ago, Richard Murdoch. And Richard was, a, like I mentioned, a pretty, pretty pathetic case, though a relatively gifted guy. Um, my brother recently reminded me of another uh, guy I knew that was way further down the line than Richard Murdoch. Um, His name was Frankie Dominic. Uh, When I was in high school, Frankie would have been around late 20s, early 30s. Hard to date him exactly, but because by the time he was that age, more than half the teeth in his mouth were gone. And the rest of them were were very rotted-like, which wasn't an altogether rare thing um, uh, in some of the native community there around Fort St. James. There's a whole bunch of tribes that live up um, north of Fort St. James and funnel back down uh, through it in one large reserve right, uh, right there in town, and then two further up on the lake on the east side of the of the lake, Stewart Lake there runs, as I mentioned, if you just follow it all around, you could ride a boat for 55 miles from one end uh, to the other um, and about seven, eight miles across in the, in the wider, widest portions of it. But anyhow, Frankie, Frankie was the kind of, drunk that just had no no friends, no one his age at all would have anything to do with him. He was a little mentally challenged and he was he was just drunk all the time and he and he hang he hung around with a bunch of older drunks that I would see most every day because I had a job at the grocery store there. Overweighty had opened there was a chain there's a chain of grocery stores in British Columbia called Overweighty. They had opened a store in that town in the fall of 1974 when we had moved there. So I was one of the first employees in that uh, store. And I would walk to work along a street that followed a creek. And then you'd have to go out to the main drag and then cross that creek over some massive culverts uh, that had been built there in Lass. You, you, you cut across, there was a path, and you could cut across that creek, and there was a tree branch that had fallen across, and you could walk across that tree branch and then up the hill and enter the store uh, from the side, which is what I, what I always did. Well, there was regularly, just about every day, unless it was too cold, um, uh, there would be about 12, 13 drunk people, men and women, sitting in a little circle by that creek just over where I would cross and they would uh, 
harass me uh, every day. They, they, they've gotten to know me a little bit. Um, and they would tell the same joke over and over again. The name of the store is Overweight, Overweighty. And so what they love to say is, is this, Randy, you've got to sell that overweight tea, eh? It's kind of clever the first time you hear it. Uh, you know, on the, on, 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 the, on, the, on the 75th time, it loses some of its vip and, uh, zip and, uh, and vigor. Uh, well, Frankie really loved that. Every time he saw me anywhere, hey, Randy, you going to sell me some of that overweight tea, eh? And he laughed like it was the joke that he had just made up and that I'd never heard it before. That was Frankie. Now, one of the low points in his experience, actually, related directly to our store, because as part of the grand opening of that store, uh, they raffled off a brand-new 1975 uh, four-wheel drive pickup. And, uh, and when the name was drawn, Frankie Dominic won that raffle. Well, he didn't have a driver's license. He was never going to have a driver's license. In a remarkable moment of clarity, he went and actually talked to my dad about it. And, uh, so, you know, Marv, what should I do? You know, I won this truck. Oh, Frankie, don't receive the truck, you know. Uh, you know, let's, let's go to the bank. We'll have the bank sell the truck for you, and then maybe we can set up some kind of fund where they can, you know, dole out a little money at a time. You don't know what last thing you want is a whole bunch of money or this truck. Don't do that. So Frankie thought about that advice, and then he, then he took the truck. And then suddenly, you know, for about four days, he had tons of friends, tons of friends who wanted to drive that uninsured pickup truck around, and they did. Uh, And then about on the fourth day, one of them, with about six guys in the back and a couple of others in the cab with him, went off the road and totaled it into a tree. And then it was just gone. It was gone. And then the word was from his former friends, stupid, stupid Frankie. He gets this pickup truck. (laughs) Look what he does with it. What a moron. And he was really ashamed of that. But he didn't say it out loud. In fact, the only thing he ever said to me about it was, Hey, Randy, easy come, easy go, eh? Easy come, easy go, eh? Well, I graduated from high school, and a few years later, Frankie Dominic went to a Bible study and made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. He's just, he's like, he, he, just, he reached out his hand and he touched that robe. And he just quit drinking. He didn't go to any program. He just quit drinking and started to wash 
and went to every Bible study he could go to. And started to talk to people about Jesus. Everywhere he went. My brother brought him up because he was reminding me of his, he died about 10 years ago. And at his funeral, at his funeral, there was no seats left in the church. The church was packed. There was people standing across the back, and there was people standing outside in the village where he had been born. And they gave his testimony in that service. And several people professed faith in Christ at the close of that service. So why was it so full? Because everybody had the same question. Because most of them didn't have the answer. Everybody had the same question. They had wondered it for 20 years by then. What happened to Frankie? What happened to Frankie? Because I I could tell you, I cannot explain to you how low he was. I cannot even begin to explain to you how far down he was. And then where he what he became. With the help of a few people at Bible study. And on he went like that for over 20 years. And then he died. And then he died. Who is Jesus? See, the life of Frankie Dominic answers the question the same way that Mark wants it answered here. There's the power of God somehow works through Jesus. Really does, actually does. And through Jesus, anything can happen that God could do, which is anything. The central, the central message of the last 20 years of the guy's life is this. Jesus can do anything for anybody, anytime. Jesus could do anything for anybody, anytime. That's what all those people wondered about. They didn't answer it that way. They didn't give credit to Jesus. Ninety-some percent of the people who were there for his funeral, they were not thinking like that. They were simply asking this, what in the world happened to Frankie Dominic?
and they came out to pay tribute to him. Most of them, because they didn't have any clue what had happened. But they knew something absolutely unexplainable happened. And Mark is telling us, you see, no, no, something quite explainable happened. He reached out, and he took hold of the hem of Jesus' garment, figuratively speaking. And like many of these people in the ancient world, he was made well. For him, you have to use the broader term for sure. He was saved. He was saved and became a lover of Jesus for the last 20 years of his life. It's a marvel. It's a marvel. And that's the Jesus you and I know. That's the Jesus we can speak to every day. And that's the Jesus that we plead with about the Frankies in our own experience that look hopeless and unreachable. And we should at least know this. Jesus can do anything, anytime, anywhere. That's just who he is. He's Yahweh. He's creator God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would enable us to go beyond where the disciples were in that boat, that our hearts wouldn't be hard, that we would understand what the feeding of the 5,000 means in a way they didn't. We would understand the walking on the water in a way that they didn't. We would understand the healing of the sick in the marketplace, in the Gennesaret, in a way that they didn't, so that we would have ultimate, deep, abiding, comforting confidence in you through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.